The views and opinions expressed on my story, Living with Lupus Podcast, represents each person's individual experience. By listening to this podcast or reading our blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. As always, consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. My Story Living with Lupus podcast is officially trademarked, all rights reserved. Thank you for joining me for another episode of My Story Living with Lupus Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Hendricks, and I'm so glad that you could join me on this Sunday. That's right, Sunday, August 1st, 2021. Today's episode is about to prevent chronic illness. Start with mental health. Also, healthy lifestyles limits lupus risk. So, you know what I want you to do. That's right. All the way to the un- from the United States to Nara, Japan. Get ready to grab your cup of coffee, your cup of tea, and to my listeners late at night, Now, you know I appreciate you, so go ahead, go on, get ready to grab your favorite glass of wine and join the conversation right here on My Story, Living with Lupus Podcast. Thank you for joining me. Um, sorry that I could not put a podcast out on Friday. I have been very fatigued, and the fatigue is hitting me like a mat truck. And plus, I'm running a temperature of 100. But today, I want to talk about, and I think it is necessary to go back over this topic, to prevent chronic illness, start with mental health. And also, um, what do you think about doctors who actually inject cocaine into your spine for science? Yes, you heard me right. We'll be talking about that and along with healthy lifestyle limits, lupus risk. But let's get started with to prevent chronic illness, start with mental health. You know, um, it should come as 
little surprise that the pandemic triggered a surge in mental health issues. Millions lost their jobs. Life-threatening illnesses lurked at every corner and socializing in person became dangerous. Now, if this topic sounds familiar to you, it's because I I did this topic once before and I feel that it is important to do it again because there are so many individuals who are suffering from anxiety and depression. And how do you think that affects your overall health? Now, indeed, the CDC recently reported that since the pandemic started, 41% of Americans reported symptoms of anxiety or depression, up from about 11% in 2019. The trends were even more alarming for children. Compared to 2019, mental health-related visits to the ER for children ages 5 to 11 and 12 to 17 increase a relative 24% and 31% respectively. Perhaps even more troubling is the fact that behavioral Healthcare professionals are struggling to meet the demand for their services. To be sure, mental health resources were stretched thin before the pandemic, but a February survey by the National Council for Mental Wellbeing found that over two-thirds of member organizations have been increased, have seen, I should say, an increased demand for their services, and a similar proportion have had to turn patients away. These trends are concerning in their own right, but they have grave consequences for America's physical health as well. Now, we often talk about depression as a complication of chronic illness. Indeed, by some estimates, one-third of all patients with chronic disease also suffer from depression. As the thinking goes, once a patient is diagnosed with diabetes, for example, the weight of their diagnosis fills them with despair and sadness, leading to depression. But what we don't talk about enough is how depression can lead to chronic disease rather than the other way around. Many of the hallmark symptoms of depression result in unhealthy behaviors that can lead to or 
worsen chronic disease. For example, patients with depression may not have the motivation to exercise regularly or cook healthy meals. Many also have trouble getting adequate sleep. To cope with their feelings, some may overeat or turn to drugs and alcohol, wrecking havoc on their organs over time. Depression can also impact medication adherence in patients that already have chronic illness. Forgetfulness is a common symptom of depression and naturally depressed patients may forget to take their medication. In other cases, they may simply lack the motivation to do so, seeing their life as worthless. In a grim sense, falling, well, failing, I should say, to take one's medication can be thought of as an act of self-harm. As a result, patients can become chronically ill while being too depressed to properly manage their condition. Many become high utilizers, cycling in and out of the hospital and raking up bills that only compound their stress. But there is hope by treating patients' depression. We can improve or even prevent chronic disease. Now, what do you guys think about holistic medications or holistic healthcare system? Too often we treat mental health and physical health separately, but the two are intertractably linked. Left unaddressed, the current surge in depression and anxiety will contribute to a surge in chronic disease. This isn't a problem for behavioral healthcare system to face on its own. Primary care physicians and specialists from oncology to endocrinology to cardiology need to take steps to address the way their patients' mental health affects their overall health and approach care from a truly integrative perspective. Yes, behavioral health care system is already stretching the limits of its capacity, but if we do not meet the mental health crisis with the response it demands, we could see our medical health care system strained in the same way. It won't be easy, but with creative and novel solutions, we can get the mental health crisis under control. Now, 
any progress on tackling the mental health crisis will also depend on addressing the socioeconomic and cultural factors that both drive mental health problems and pose obstacles to care. The pandemic has emphasized the impact of economic security and social support on mental well-being, yet behavioral health care remains too costly for many and woefully underfunded. And you know, the stigma possesses another barrier while mental health concerns have become more normalized, many still feel shame about seeking health. In particular, racial and ethnic minorities are much less likely to seek treatment for mental health issues than whites. Healthcare providers and payers should pay close attention to patients in these communities when it comes to mental health, even if the patients decline to report symptoms. And I know this is one of the biggest problems we have in the African American community, especially when we are brought up and taught that what goes on behind these four walls stay behind these four walls. Take it to God. But God can only do so much on our behalf. Um, God helps the child who helps himself, okay? Um, it's time for us in the African-American community and also in the Latina community to stand up, speak up, and get the help if you need it. When I return, we'll be discussing healthy lifestyle limits lupus risk. Stay with me. Do you believe that adhering to a healthy lifestyle can um, put limits on or eliminate lupus risk? Now, a healthy lifestyle consists of diet, exercise, weight control, um, smoking, um, cessation, and um, limiting alcohol use. Do you believe that can lower the risk in women when it comes to lupus? Let's see what research states. Now, adherence to a healthy lifestyle contributed to lowering the risk for development of systemic lupus erythematosus, better known as SLE. An analysis of data from the Nurses 
health study found in a multivariable analysis a higher healthy lifestyle index score was associated with a decreased likelihood for developing SLE with a hazard ratio of 0.81 per unit increase. According to Harvard Medical School in Boston, a higher HLIS also was linked with a lower risk for having the severe subtype of SLE in which patients are seropositive for anti-double-stranded DNA antibodies with a hazard ratio of 0.78. SLE is thought to result from an interaction between genetic and environmental factors such as exposure to cigarette smoke, ultraviolet light, and silica, as well as hormonal and metabolic factors, including obesity. Now, previous studies have suggested that individual lifestyle factors may contribute to the development of other autoimmune disease, such as rheumatoid arthritis, and that an overall healthier lifestyle helped lower the risk for multiple chronic diseases, including cancer, diabetes, cardiovascular, and autoimmune diseases. To explore the effects on SLE risks specifically by analyzing the effects of high versus low HLIS, a combination outcome that requires meeting recommended guidelines for diet, exercise, body weight, smoking, and moderate alcohol use. Participants completed questionnaires on lifestyle, healthy behaviors, and newly diagnosed diseases throughout follow-up. The HLIS was calculated 0 to 5, with one point each being assigned for low-risk behaviors of never or past smoking, not being overweight, drinking alcohol in moderation, following a healthy diet, and exercising regularly. The study population included 185,962 female nurses during 4,649,477 
person years of follow-up. 203 new cases of SLE were reported, with 96 being anti-DSDNA positive. Mean age at baseline was 43 and 93% were white. The SLE diagnosis occurred at a medium duration of 10.8 years after study enrollment. The mean HLIS was 1.4 compared with women who had only one or no healthy behaviors. Those with at least four healthy behaviors had the lowest risk for SLE. This high level of healthy behaviors also was calculated to represent almost half the population attributed risk for SLE based on statistical assumption that the entire study population had at least four healthy behaviors. Now, um, there were previous studies and they examined those and the influence of individual risk factors such as smoking and obesity on SLE. However, the approach of studying multiple lifestyle factors together rather than individually provides a more pragmatic and holistic understanding of how lifestyle factors can affect risk of disease events, the author observed. They also noted that environmental exposures may influence common pathways associated with disease pathogenesis, including induction of oxidative stress, damage to endogenous proteins, and DNA autoantibody production and upregulations of pro-inflammatory cytokines to induce epigenic changes resulting in altered gene expression affecting immune homostasis. Now, a study limitation was the predominantly white female population, which does not reflect multiple social determinants of health, such as poverty, stress, and population. So the results will need to be validated in a more diverse cohort than what was originally performed. Stay 
right with me and I'm going to give you a brief introduction to injecting cocaine into your spine for science. That's right. I said it. And this it, article comes from MedPage today. Um, Roman, Ronan Francis, MBBS. So stick with me. If you feel that you can't speak to anyone, remember there's help for you. Contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. You're never alone. Ophthalmology Associates, PC, Drs. Berman and Dr. Zuckerbrod, treating diseases of the eye and eye surgery. You can reach them at 313-341-3450. Injecting cocaine into your spine for science. Yes, doctors actually did this. I found this interesting, um, and it goes back in history. Um, It takes a look back at the time doctors injected themselves with cocaine in the name of science. Okay, um, I'm gonna call this because um, it's it's pretty long. I'm gonna call this scene one. Good evening and welcome back to the old. England Journal of Medicine. It's off to the former colonies today. As recently, I had the sterling fortune to while away an evening with two gentlemen from the North American continent, of course, one of whom was recently taking up appointment here in Great Britain, a Sir William Osler, with whose work, no doubt, may many of you will be familiar. Syrup-guzzling Canadians are mostly tolerable company but he insisted on bringing with him one of those uncouth Americans, a doctor, William Halstead, 
who by Jove is a rugby addict, a fine surgeon, no doubt, but Gazooks, man, he was buzzing like a canary with his cuff in the snuff. Osler told me in confidence that the belighter is unable to operate unless he has injected cocaine. To mention nothing of the three grains of morphine that has become his daily ritual, according to my wife, who spoke with his wife, who overheard his valet's wife. I am sure you utilize in your practice cocaine as an effective and safe local anesthetic, but you might not be aware that it also has some recreational uses. Nevertheless, when not boring the company collected at the Royal College with talk of radical mastectomies, he shared with us the most entertaining recent correspondence from the noted German physician, Dr. August Beer. The Yankee Dodge either has been in common use as an anesthetic agent since the recently departed Queen Victoria's early reign. But as we are all aware, patients were often discourteous enough to expire mid-operation dashed inconsiderate. Personally, I didn't see any problem with this, but bear evidently posing the sensitive heart of a woman wished to examine cocaine's properties, not only as a local anesthetic, but as a regional block allowing major surgeries to be performed by cocaining the spine cord itself. He begins by detailing how to inject into the correct cerebral spinal space, a procedure that causes a beastly headache due to the leakage of the fluid contained therein. And then he lists his initial subjects. I shall read directly. A 34-year-old laborer who was hopelessly riddled with tuberculosis. He had suffered many complications from earlier general anesthetic and dreaded another one. I therefore propose spinal putting cocaine into the spine and he accepted. After administration, 
he felt nothing in the lower half of his body. And I sawed off his leg and he felt no pain. Two hours after the operation, his back and left leg became painful and the patient vomited and complained a severe headache which persisted for two days. Subject number two, a 17-year-old baker suffered from osteomyelitis of the tibia. He witters on a bit as Germans are, are won't to do about the protocol. Waffle, waffle, Fritz. Yes. Just get on with it. Hey, I enjoyed this part. After administration of the cocaine, the operation delighted the patient who laughed and chattered with great enthusiasm and excitement but low, a crashing depression and severe headache ensued. The last subject, a 14-year-old boy suffered from the tuberculosis and, and colitis of the left knee and no other problems. The boy complained unseasonally and was too backward and uncooperative for any test of sensation. These cases demonstrate that a small volume of cocaine solution introduced into the dural sac renders a large part of the body insensitive enabling major operations of that region to be performed without causing pain. However, I still encountered complications. To reach a well-informed opinion, I decided to perform some cocaine investigations on my Self. On August the 28th, 1898, I had Dr. Hildebrandt perform a lumbar puncture on me and inject a half syringe of a 1% solution of cocaine. Unfortunately, most of it escaped and no insensibility was achieved because of the considerable loss of the cerebral spinal fluid. I postponed repetition of the procedure on myself until a later occasion, but Dr. Hildebrand immediately offered to have the same study performed on himself 
without delay. Next week, you'll hear the rest of this story regarding injecting cocaine into your spine for science. We'll find out how it all went on next week's episode of my story, Living with Lupus. Well, it's that time for me to go. Coming up on the next, in the next two weeks of um, August, I have some interviews set up um, that you will find very inspirational and informative. Also, as you guys know that I am going through a new diagnosis of gastroparesis. And that simply means that part of my stomach is paralyzed. Um, Lupus attacked my gastrointestinal system. And um, I'm trying to hang in there with that. But it is um, hard because it looks like I'm about six months, seven months pregnant. And my stomach um, gets so tight. Also, um, you know, I have the blood um, infection. And I'm going back to the doctor on Thursday um, to see about my lymph nodes, what they're going to do about my lymph nodes. Are they going to remove them or what? People listen here. Mental health is no joke. You know, I thought about the reaction to um, Simone Biles' decision to back out of the Olympics. And people really need to get a better understanding from those who go through mental health crisis. Become aware regarding the issues that are out here now regarding mental health. Um, It is important. Um, It is a well-known fact in the black community that we are taught to Whatever goes on between these four walls stay in these four walls. But sometimes we also need an unbiased person to listen to what is going on in our lives. So it is no shame to reach out to someone, a professional, regarding your mental health. Just like your physical health is important, your mental health is important also. And hey, look, look what we've been through this last year and are still going through. We were in a pandemic where we had to stay 
inside could not um, interact with individuals like we used to. And with the way the numbers are headed back up now, it wouldn't surprise me one bit if we go back into a lockdown situation. I say all of that to say this, look, if you need somebody, a professional, don't get your girlfriend to talk to because that girlfriend may go run and tell all your business. Go to a trained mental health professional and get the help you need. There is no shame in your game, you know, just like I said. Physical health is important just as much as mental health is important. Well, that's it for this episode of My Story, Living with Lupus. I wish you a most peaceful, positive, productive week. I'll see you next time for another episode.